It's like I'm new here. You'll have to give me the so I know. Ready, Freddy? Buckle up. Welcome to Musicians and Beyond, where we bring you the backstage info on the life, the lyrics, and the long journeys of the music industry. I am John Sarabian. I'm sitting next to the best co-host in the world, Mark Lawhorn. And Mark, you set up today's interview, and what a guest this guy is. I mean, we've had guys that can tell stories. This guy's whole life is telling stories and, and has been 45 years of telling stories about rock musicians and the concerts that he attended, the shows, Backstage and Beyond with Jim Sullivan. Wonderful guy, great writer, obviously been with the Boston Globe for many, many, many years and now um, out doing his, uh, writing his own books, volume one and volume two of that series. Great stories interviewing hundreds and hundreds of musicians over the years. Yeah, and they're not just regular musicians, Mark. They are A-list musicians. I mean, Alice Cooper, Neil Young, Pete Townsend, Lou Reed, David Bowie, Jerry Lee Lewis, just to name a few. I mean, it's nuts. And this guy is awesome. And you got to spend some time with him last night. Yeah, we went over to the Paradise Rock Club in, uh, in Boston, and he had the book launch. It was fun to be there and meet some of the people that were there to support him and listen to the conversations and the stories. Uh, so really looking forward to you know delving into his books and, and hearing you know some of that backstage and beyond uh, here with musicians and beyond. I can't wait to and forget about us talking, Mark. Let's let's get the guy on. Let's, let's get hear. Jim Sullivan. Big Jim Sullivan. Big Jim. How you doing? I am doing well, thanks. You're doing good. You Just, got your Gatorade. You're ready to go. I have my Gatorade. Yeah. I have a uh, copy of the book, The Galley, right here. All right, and we got ours as well. Matching. There we go. Good, good, That's good. Awesome. Love to see that. Yeah, you've been a busy guy uh, promoting your book. Actually, your books, two books. It has, Yes, it has been promotion season, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> a great uh, thing, though. Oh, it's fun, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's funny. When you guys got in touch late last night, I was just sort of tired. I was like... Oh, yeah, right. Got another one of these. But when I got up today, I was like, going, oh, yeah, this will be good. I'm getting my game face on here. So, right. that's, uh, And this isn't just another podcast. This is Musicians and Beyond. <laughs> this See? is not just another podcast. Plus, it's the only podcast I've done with Beyond in the title. Okay. Right? So, you know, <laughs> that synergy again right there. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's we got right. something going on. So, Jim, that's you've right. been in the uh, journalism field for 45 years. You must have seen it all. Uh, a little more than 45, to be honest, because I started, yeah, I was a columnist for the Bangor Daily News when I was in college. So I would have been 20, and I wrote for the college newspaper a little bit before that. So I guess we would say about 47 years, 47 years, call it, say. Okay. How's that? Yeah, good Come amount of time. You've, uh, you've paid your dues. What made you want to get into journalism? Um, well, uh it was something I found out I was pretty good at at some point, probably in college. I mean, I did do my high school paper, as many people do, uh, tried a few things. And uh, also, you know, it's a case of narrowing it down. What else am I good at? Mm, maybe not so many other things. And, um, you know, I, I'm not a good musician. I picked up the bass. I thump, thumped away at it for a while, took lessons, quit. Um, didn't have the patience, didn't have the dexterity, and then also thought, even if I got good, even if I was a good bassist and was in a good band, what are the chances I could actually do this for a long time, for a living? 
And the chances are they're pretty low, as you probably well know. And, um, you know, one of the other things you kind of learn along the way when you're talking to musician friends who have been doing this for a long time is that, you know, even if they're out there making a living at some level, it's a grind. And the travel gets not as much fun. I mean, fun when you're in your 20s, a little less in your 30s, and then you can... It, it goes from there. Yeah. Can you imagine being the Rolling Stones doing it right now at their age? Oh, yeah. And Aerosmith and was, yeah. Yeah, Tom is, uh, and Joe are actually friends of mine. Yeah. They're, they're both in the book, the first book. Um, and their plan when they do get back, uh, back in the saddle, so to speak, next year is to take it's a three day off thing, day or concert, day off, day off concert. And they're pacing it that way to do what they need to do. But keep in mind, too, this is a luxury band touring at the highest level. Uh, bands that are not at that level, that are at a club level and have been at it for so many years, you know, they're traveling in a van. You know, they're sleeping in Motel 6s if they're lucky. And, you know, that's a difficult life. I mean, I, I respect people who've chosen it, can keep at it. And the music means that much to them that they want to do it. Um, but it ain't easy, you know. You know, Jim, you and, mentioned you mentioned the book. And you mentioned those two guys being in your book. And we've, yes. got, we've got a copy of the book right here. You do. That's not quite the one Aerosmith is in. They're in the first volume, which yep. is the uh, the classic rock chats and rants. This one is the modern rock chats and rants. And if you're wondering, um, when we started this project, me and my publisher editor, Ira Robbins, Basically, I kept writing chapter after chapter and turning them in. And he kept saying, this is really good. And the next one, this is really good. So there was this positive feedback loop coming, and I just didn't stop. And at one point, we realized, or kind of simultaneously, we got a lot of stuff here. This is like a doorstop of a book if we don't break it up into two parts. And no one wants a doorstep. You don't want to sell it. You don't want to buy it. Um, you know, so... <laughs> We decided to break it into two, and then it was a case of how do we define uh, how do we define these two books? And the classic and modern terms are a little bit maybe specious, but basically the first book is artists who started in the fifties, like Jerry Lee Lewis, Ray Orbison, Darlene Love, Tina Turner, um, into the sixties, Ray Davies, Pete Townsend, um, many many more, Mary Faithful, seventies. Uh, early 70s, uh, you know, Warren Zevon, uh, Richard Thompson. And then the next book, the one you're looking at here, volume two, pretty much is mid 70s and beyond, uh, you know, up through whenever, uh, really up through the 90s, I think would be where the cutoff point kind of is. But the idea there, uh, it happened to fall into the era that we know as punk, post-punk and new wave music. So much of that is there. Absolutely. So we're, we're talking with Jim Sullivan, the author of Backstage and Beyond, 45 Years of Modern Rock Chats and Rants. And Jim, you, you spent many years, as you uh, noted, at the Boston Globe covering yep. music. And that's where these stories come from. Uh, your number of interviews over the years and all your notes and all the conversations that you've had. What gave you the idea to finally do the book? What, what brought that about? Um, nagging. <laughs> uh, Facebook friends have, have noted that I posted bits of stories here and there on birthdays or death days or, or something to trigger it. And the trail will often say, I'm you've got a lot of good stuff here. Shouldn't you do a book? Uh, and I go, yeah, sure. Maybe. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but the more serious 
the kick in the pants was both from my wife, Rosa, who <laughs> said pretty much the same thing. You've got good stuff here. Do something more with it. And then when I met with Ira, the editor publisher, we had uh, he and his wife, who's the designer, Christina, uh, met with me and Rosa last summer. And in the conversation, it kind of came up and Ira said, look, I, you know, I publish these books, these kinds of books. He's, and uh, would you like to do it? And so I think it was a confluence of those people, you know, both intimate uh, wife, friend, Ira, publisher, and the people that, you know, read me uh, saying, put these in book form. And one of Ira's arguments to do so was, you know, the legacy posterity thing. Uh, yeah, everything's online. A lot of stuff's online. We know that. But there is something to be said for having a object, a handheld, you know, tactile uh, representation of what you've done and having seen them, you know, when they came in the mail, the boxes of them, I'm looking at them going, yeah, I'm proud. You know, it's good to have this. Good for you. And yeah. It's, a, it's nice to see, you know, the response I've gotten both, you know, the parties and the, the readings that are coming up. Um, and even, um, I was talking to a friend yesterday who said, uh, hey, a friend of mine was, uh, he lives outside Philadelphia and he was in this uh, small indie bookstore and he saw your book and he bought it. And I'm going, like, oh, great. Because at this point, we're a small, it's a DIY publishing situation. We're yeah. not Macmillan, you know, it's not Random House. Um, so I'm not quite sure exactly where the book, the hard copy, <laughs> the book gets to. I mean, yeah, Amazon online, Barnes and Noble online, and Trouser Press Books online, which is Iris Company. But you're, and you're never sure, just you're never sure exactly where it is on the shelves. <laughs> so it's kind of nice to hear that from out of town, you know. Absolutely. So let me ask you you did your book launch uh, for the volume two the other night at the paradise in boston yep. um do you remember the first time you walked into the paradise rock lounge yeah well mm, good question i can tell <laughs> you the first band i covered there the okay. first artist i covered there and boy is this somebody that if, if you recognize this artist uh, credit to you or you're insane wasmo nariz he was a new wave guy and one, one of his shticks was he wore two ties if you remember the skinny tie era of new wave he had two ties and it was wasmo two ties nor is and it was sort of good pop punk if i remember but it was the first review i did for the globe hence you know walking in and going oh man this is pretty cool i'm reviewing this guy who i you know knew uh, at the time uh but he was definitely on this lower scale of things um so that would be the, the first paradise memory that i can actually verify that That's i was cool. there for it is that is so over your um 45 plus years you've interviewed hundreds of people how yeah. did you narrow down who was going to go into your books um a lot of it was really what just popped into my head and then checking my files to see if I had as much as I thought I did on the person I, person or band I was thinking about. And um, if I did, and I felt like I could tell a story that was beyond just the Globe story that I might have written X number of years ago, that I could update it, that I could contextualize it or recontextualize it. And also perhaps put myself into the story a bit more. Then it kind of raised up to the level of, yeah, let's see if I can do this. Let's see if I can make it an interesting chapter out of this. And some of the chapters are, are sort of long and involved and detailed and others are more vignette like, um, the one I was thinking of was, um, 
the one on the fall, Mark E. Smith, uh, where you know there's a few stories there that I hadn't told because they weren't really proper or pertinent in a daily journalism situation. But the way it <laughs> kicks off is uh, I can tell this story here, I'm sure. Maybe it'll entice people to buy the book. Absolutely. Uh, I was at the, the club uh, Axis on Lansdowne Street. Um, and uh, the fall was playing and downstairs, we were in the upstairs area, which was serving as backstage at the time. And I was there with a bunch of other people and the band was there milling about. And I knew Mark, I'd interviewed him. We, we had a certain kind of relationship, I guess, you know, artist, writer. And he spotted me across the room and uh, familiar face and came came running over, walking over, whatever. And he says, um, hey, hey, um, you got me, got me coke. You got me speed. You got anything? Make me go fast. And I'm thinking, okay, does he know who I am? Does he know <laughs> that I'm a writer who's interviewed him? Am I just a familiar face in Boston? Do I look like his Boston dealer? I don't. I don't know any of these things. <laughs> and it's sort of this awkward situation of going first. Going, I don't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I don't. And then I thought, oh, but wait, uh, the woman over there. I, I think she does. And she was sort of, that's one of the things she did. So he, he beavered off her direction. And I do not know exactly what happened after that, but I did see the show and I'm guessing he was successful in his quest. So what's great about you is you're in with all these people and you have things like that happen all the time and you've earned their trust. There's like, you know, there can be people backstage and journalists and stuff but you've become more to a lot of these people, friends going out for, you know, wine and dinner and so forth. And, you know, they've earned your trust. So you must have a vault in your head for uh, volume three, uh, we could call it the vault, of all these <laughs> things that happened to you that you never let out because it really could kill someone's career. I don't know about that exactly. I mean, I, I don't have any deep, dark secrets beyond, well, so what I've what I published in these two books. And yeah, there may be a volume three, certainly. I've got many more artists that I could deal with. Um, in the first book, there's the Jerry Lee Lewis story, which uh, is very tangled and complicated. And it, it deals with uh, heaven and hell and lust and love and uh, alcohol and uh, death. And uh he talked to me about the allegations that he may have killed one of his wives. And this was after Rolling Stone had written a story very much suggesting that. And I was the first interview or interviewer to broach that with him in a limousine, riding from the club casino in New Hampshire to the airport where he was flying back to uh, Louisiana, I guess. And I knew I had to ask a question. And, uh, you know, we had a good relationship. We really did. And that comes out in the book. I mean, there was a lot of trust and a lot of badinage and a lot of flippancy. But this was time to get serious. And I said, look, these, these allegations are out there. Charges are, you know, I know you weren't charged by the police, but the story's pretty convincing. So he talked about it. And it's a back and forth in the book. And, you know, he explains what he believes happened to his wife. Um uh, and some of the things, you know, I don't go out and say one way or the other what happened because I do not know and I wouldn't pretend to know. But I think the reader can read between the lines and say, there's some things here that just don't add up. And that's kind of how I left it in that, um, okay, uh, one of the things he said was that she had mistaken his methadone for aspirin and had taken a bunch of. Do people do that? I don't know. 
I mean, you know, there, there were th- things like that. There was the idea that when he found her in bed, she was in this position where, you know, the, um, the cla- or actually the, this, I guess, the, the hands clasped across the chest, i.e. the person lying in a casket position. Do people die like that? I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> is that a he, – now, he is dead, certainly. I have written that story before. I'd written parts of that story before. So, no, it wasn't a career killer for him. But it's certainly the more most serious part in my book, you know, in both of these books, I guess, where, you know, it gets real in that sense. So – Interesting. Uh, aside from that, I mean, most of the rock and roll stuff that I deal with in the book, you know, if there's bad behavior, it's more on the hijinks end of it than, you know, the really serious, you know, horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. So when, when you were covering music, you were really in the heyday of Boston scene around here, and we've lost those clubs. We, what was your favorite club back in the day to cover a band or see a band at that's no longer uh, around? I can do several, and, you know, they'll be familiar to anyone who was there during that time. Uh, the Rat, certainly. Uh, a lot of bands launched there. And, you know, we, we all know that history of, you know, the police coming there for the first time. And, um, you know, so many great bands. The Wipers were a band I loved. I didn't get to write about here, but they were, saw them there. Um, uh, the Swans, who I did write about during this book, saw them there for the first time. There was the rat, and then of course moving up to um, Spit, Axis, Metro City, all yeah. that combination of clubs on Lansdowne Street, and not forgetting at all the Channel uh, on Neko Street, yeah. where so many different bands played of so many different genres. And uh, Warren Scott was the booker there and did a terrific job fighting Don Law, the major promoter in town, and wrenching away. Some terrific shows from the Butthole Rivers to the Cramps to Roy Orbison. Roy closes the first book, uh, my relationship with him and me doing the last interview that he ever did and covering one of the last shows he ever did. Um, that was at the channel. Jerry Lee also was at the channel. Um, uh, funk bands, Cameo was there, P Funk was there. Uh, they brought, and, and of course, they, you know, all of these clubs had booked local bands. And Boston bands all the time as well. So we had clubs that were busy, you know, six or seven nights a week. And you look at some of the posts these days on the, you know, people will put up the old uh, ad from the Boston Phoenix of the bands playing. You look at the bands and go, my God, I would want to be out there all six nights, right? And sometimes I was out there, maybe four or five of them anyway. And because between the Boston bands that were very good and the national and international bands coming in, it was pretty exhaustive. And I mean, granted, I mean, this was my job. So I got paid <laughs> to be doing these things. If I were simply a fan of the music, uh, you know, you'd have to have some money and time and recovery time to do all of that stuff. So, I mean, I was fortunate to be able to do a lot of that and, and have it be on the Globe's dime and, uh, you know, be paid to basically uh, be out there, maybe not as a participant per se, but certainly a, a very uh, insider observer of mm-hmm. all that was going on. Yeah, it seems like Boston was a stepping stone for all the A-list people. Boston had a lot of the huge bands start here, and then they'd work their way across the country. Yeah, I mean, one thing was, well, a couple of things. One, proximity uh, to New York, for one thing. I mean, New York is the big, uh, big apple, the big place to play. Boston being just a short hop, skip, and a jump from there, oftentimes a band would 
the tour would start here. And it wasn't exactly like a tryout city or anything like that, because Boston wasn't that. But it was a good place to start and then move on to New York. And this was especially true for bands that came over from England, because they're flying over here. Boston is their, their first start. And so we got here in Boston pretty much any and everything that went elsewhere. Um, I can't think of any major bands or minor bands even that we missed uh, for whatever reason. And also because we had a terrific college radio scene, as you well know, um, you know, maybe what, five, six stations, all programming, you know, variations of this new music, whatever you wanted to call it, punk, new wave or post-punk or industrial, whatever it might be. There was that. And the fact that there were so many colleges here and a turnover of students uh, pretty much kind of guaranteed an audience of uh, young people who wanted to be out in clubs and were interested in music. And that was the day, too, obviously, where there were fewer diversions in the worlds of video game and virtual reality and um, AI and things that exist now that didn't exist then. So I think music socialization was more important to a lot of people that age and uh man they had it was just a real sweet spot for all of that i think for for them for me for the bands you know uh we had a guest on a couple weeks ago um he was in bands back in the 70s and 80s and starting out and he told a story about um when they were playing in a club out and i believe they were in california at the time and they were um weren't getting paid. And a gentleman came in and spent some time watching and he liked the band a lot. And he asked the, uh, the bar manager, how much are they getting paid for tonight? Bar manager said, they're not. He went and took money out of his own pocket and he paid the band for being there that evening. And you, you cover this gentleman and, and I know you had a good relationship and you speak highly of him. David Bowie, is that the type of thing that you'd believe David Bowie would do as, yeah. as a person? As yeah, a person? very much. Um, I mean, David went through many phases, both musically and I think personally. Uh, I was fortunate enough when I talked to him to catch him in terrific points in his life, which would mean post-recovery. Um, you know, he went through a pretty bad cocaine period. He made some great music during that period, um, but it also was very self-destructive as well. When I got in his orbit and started talking to him, writing about him. He was extremely centered, focused, um, conversive, warm, uh, and giving, you know, uh, of himself. And he was somebody who was on you know, a continual quest to make music and discover music. And I made a sort of a joke about this. There was a cartoon in an English paper that had him as um, sort of this vampire who would sort of descend upon scenes in various clubs, subcultures, and kind of pick from them and kind of pick what he wanted and then weave them into his new music. And, you know, Bowie, to his credit, laughed. He said, well, it's not really, maybe that's not so far from the truth. You know, I, I do I do some of that. Um, and the, the one thing, one of the things I really liked about talking with him over the years was... Uh, his he he was yes of course if you're doing an album if you're doing an interview with somebody in a major newspaper you're doing it to promote a tour an album is a, a transactional uh element that's at the base of it no question but he was more than willing more than happy to go off track wherever the interview went and it didn't go i don't want to talk about that or let's stay on the new album or anything like that he, he would consider things questions that you know came up from me that were a little off whatever the beaten track 
might have been. And we got to some great, great places that way. I think a cat may have just done something in the back. <laughs> it sounded we, like we, that. <laughs> we, have, we have several. I think so. You okay? Cats okay? They didn't answer. I'm sure they are. <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. But, and, and yes, in terms of Bowie, yeah, that, that seems very much uh, in character with them. So yeah. Because you're this encyclopedia of his, music history um, and that era, especially Tim McGeary, was a guy who played in The Rescue. I don't know if you ever remember hearing of The Rescue. I do not, no. And no. Neighbors and Allies were two of the bands that he was in as he was uh, in his formative years. And uh, he's gone on to do you know, pretty good local stuff and he, a great guy. And he was a great interview. But um, I, The Rescue is one of the acts that intrigued me because of the names in Volume 2 um, sound like the same type of bands that were playing the same type of music. I think The Rescue was on tour with The Clash and some others. Oh, were they? Uh, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Stray Cats. and uh, yeah. yeah. So big name. So in your book, you have some uh, some great names. I'm just going to read a couple off. Jerry Lee Lewis, David Bowie, Lou Reed, Peter Gabriel, Pete Townsend, Alice Cooper, Elvis Costello. And it just goes on and on and on. And these guys are all A-list people, and a lot of them have made it to the Hall of Fame. Yep. Uh, I forget the count. I, I did count them up uh, for both books. The number, I count up the number of dead. 23, which, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, go ahead. You know, you know better than I do. <laughs> yeah. Number of dead, number number in the Hall of Fame. And with the Ramones, bang, 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 yeah. Hall of Fame and dead, yeah. all, all yeah. the original members. Um a sort of sadness in a certain way about all of that now. And that came to me, you know, in writing the book, realizing that, you know, I was writing in many ways about people who were no longer with us, uh, eras that had passed and uh, that would not be coming again. And uh, I'm glad I was there for it. I'm glad I was able to write about it at the time and to write about it now and again and, and kind of encapsulize it as best I can. Not the only person to have done that. Certainly, but these are my experiences and and my takes on a whole variety of musicians in a whole lot of different genres. And I'm I'm kind of proud of the idea that it's not just geared toward you know some people will specialize in you know metal or bluegrass or or uh, prog rock or whatever it might be. And my tastes are much more Catholic, lowercase C, than that. And you know, in other words, uh, you know, Roy Orbison existed in the same universe as me as the Sex Pistols and the Clash did. Uh, emotional, uh, wrenching music that, yeah. that brought me somewhere. Uh, you know, different places, obviously, but uh, but both those things mattered, and I, I could hold both of those and go, "Yep, I'm privileged to have uh, been part of all that." In that vein, and comparing the artists that you've you've looked at, and 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 the diversified portfolio mm-hmm. you have of interviews. Is there someone that you never had the opportunity to interview that you wish you had? I was asking that the other night. And I, was, I sort of drew a blank, and I, I said, well, you know, I guess maybe the Stones. I, I have not interviewed the Stones. Uh, my colleague at the Globe, Steve Morse, did oh, whatever Stones Steve, interviews yeah. there were to be had, and that was fine. I mean, that was they, they were his baby, and I was like, you know, stay at it. Uh, uh, me, I had, you know, the, the Kinks and the Who, and, um, you know, Warren Zevon, I did. Steve covered Zevon too, though, actually. But, um, Bowie, you know, there were many artists that I was very happy to have that inside, uh, route with, I guess. And some Steve and I shared. I mean, we were both, they were both big Neil Young fans. So I did, yeah. you know, some of the Neil stuff and he did some of the Neil stuff. Uh, we had a good overlap. Uh, 
both where we had different tastes, different came from different points of view. He was a generation up from me, so he, his roots were somewhat different than mine. And it was interesting because we we differed on some things. We you know we you know argue good naturedly really about it, um, and other things we were just in complete sync with. So you know that. Uh, um, I, it's a long way of not answering your question, but no, there really aren't, you know, could I, should I add Dylan to that list? No, I'd probably just get overwhelmed, yeah, <laughs> right, know, right. Inti- overwhelmed, intimidated, sure. pissed off. You know? I mean, uh, you know, what Dylan would you get today? The, the one who was sullen and wouldn't speak right. or the one who would be conversive and tell lies? I don't know. But anyway. Um, no, I'm I'm pretty happy with the, uh, the the people I got to got to know and write you, about over the years that way. You mentioned one of my favorites, and in the book, um, you get the feeling he was one of yours, Warren Zevon. Yeah, uh, just an amazing musician in person, and 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 what a legacy he's left behind. That's the probably the deepest chapter in either of the books, and he's the person I I knew best. I think of all the people in the books, both socially and musically and professionally. Um, it's the chapters fleshed out, not just by talks with, with Warren over the years, but with his ex-wife, Crystal, who wrote his, the book about him with his, uh, blessing, uh, which was warts and all, believe me. And talking to, uh, his friend and collaborator, the novelist, Carl Hyacin, he's in the book, Jorge Calderon, collaborator, he's in the book. And all of these people chipping in and talking about what it was like to work with Warren and live with Warren and um, his many, many moods. Yeah. Uh, a couple of the other guys, Boston guys, Sean Slade and Paul Calderon, who produced one of his records, and they had stories to tell about the good Warren and the bad Warren. And they said, you never knew who was going to open the door that day. Uh, and the bad Warren was no fun to be with. The good Warren was a lot of fun to be with. I mostly got the good Warren. There was one one point where I didn't. Um, and that's in the book. I won't go into the details here, but it can be, you can read about it. Um, but I, you know, in his story, you know, there's a lot of triumph and a lot of failure. And, um, I'm sure it ate at him that he was not more successful than he was. Uh, I certainly thought he should be, but you know, I'm, you know, I don't, that's not my end of the world. I comment and criticize. I, I, I'm not good at predicting who's going to be a megastar and who isn't or who should be and who isn't. And, you know, Warren wrote songs in so many different manners, uh, you know, the, the humorous, the grisly, the romantic. Um, you know, I mean, he, he, he did so many different things, so many different things well. And not every album was a gem, definitely, but many were. And uh, he went out with a great record. Um, and that was very, uh, as you read in the book, it was a very difficult time in making that record. Yes, he was ill. He knew he was ill. He knew he was dying. And he also had gone back on alcohol and I'm not sure what drugs, but probably some drugs. And so, uh, you know, Jorge had to, uh, kind of get him through that and, uh, try to get him to a point where he could, you know, sing and record and, you know, not go out. You know, know, (laughs) he was going to die, but the idea was, you know, don't go out bad. Don't go out like the bad Warren Zevon that used to be. And and I think, at least according to them, he kind of righted the ship before it all went down for good. Yeah, I think that the the documentary uh, says a lot about, you know, how how other musicians felt about him and and, and going there to play on that album. And, you know, I 
like yeah. great artists whose work became more famous and more valuable once the artist died. Warren Zevon's yeah. legacy got grows and grows and grows more and more with every year passing. Um, I, think, I think I think it does, and I mean there's there's that perennial battle about can he get in the Hall of Fame, and you know should he. You know that would so opening up the whole rock and roll hall of fame thing is a whole other kettle of yeah, worms. So yeah. let's not even go there. Um, you know, I, I guess I would say simply, if it exists, if you you believe the rock and roll hall of fame should exist and honor people who were great, yes, Warren Zevon should definitely be in the rock and roll. Here, here. Yeah. <laughs> so you've had a lot of ups and downs in the industry, meeting you know great people. I'm sure you yeah. butted some heads with with others, and some interviews didn't go as you wanted to. But you must have had a funny moment in your career. What was the funniest thing that happened to you in all your years of journalism and talking with these A-list musicians? Well, it's one of the funniest things, which is in the book verbatim, is the interview I did with uh, Johnny and Dee Dee Ramon backstage at the Orpheum Theater. I think it was 79. And um, it was just me and them in the dressing room and just sort of this rapid-fire QA thing that's kind of hilarious. I mean, it was at the time, and it's it's pretty hilarious to read. And I just, you know, kind of stepped back from trying to uh, write the story and just let them speak and, and me interject where I interjected. And them talking, you know, I'd say, you know, um, ask about what they thought about different bands. Grateful Dead, ah, you know, hate the dead. Um, didn't they have a guy named Pigpen in it? Oh, yeah, he was dirty. I hate dirty rock stars, you know. And <laughs> did he die from drugs? I don't know, you know, it's like, I mean, just all these sort of things that, I mean, really are, I, if it doesn't bring a smile to read now, um, there's something wrong with you. I tell you, it's just funny <laughs> stuff. And yeah, the sad part is they're not here anymore. And that, that I get too. I mean, that's, again, the, the sadness that kind of limbs some of the stories in the book is that you're reading about these people in the present tense as if this conversation is happening and you're privy to it and you're laughing and then you realize, you know, it's all in the past and it's never going to happen again. Um, that was one real, real funny one. Um, I, I'll tell you kind of a poignant one. This, this is in the book about George Clinton and uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Um, and it was at a time where there was some tension between blacks and whites in Boston, not that there is <laughs> a time when there maybe hasn't been, but mm. this was more extreme perhaps. And there had been trouble at a previous P-Funk concert uh, on the North Shore. This was the first time they were doing it in Boston a few years down the road. It was at the channel. And um, before the show, I mean, it, there was a mix, as usual on a P-Funk show. It was about a 50-50 black-white crowd. Things are good. Uh, you know, everyone getting along quite well. And but everyone aware of the the potential for something to go wrong, the tension that could be there could be lurking. And I was I was at the bar, uh, the back bar, and uh, just waiting my turn. And there was a black guy in front of me, and uh, it was near the it was crowded, very crowded, and people were passing by me to get to the restroom, and one of them bumped me. Hence, I bumped the guy ahead of me. So there's this kind of domino effect. And he turns around and I, you know, look at him. And both of us, you've never seen two people apologize more quickly for <laughs> bumping the other one. It was so hilarious. It was like, 
you know, in both of our heads. Oh, God, don't start anything. This was nothing, 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 nothing. This was incidental. This was just a brush. Don't mean a thing. And, you know, we both just, I, I don't remember really if we spoke about it. I think we just both laughed hilariously. Like, you know, is this, is a, this is a funny moment. And, you know, uh, <laughs> where other people could have made something really out of it, you know. Yeah. And this is just a, you know, a moment in time. And, you know, maybe incidental, but it was kind of fun. It's a, it's a, it's a fun memory of, um, Black people and white people getting along pretty good and being one nation under a groove, as George. (laughs) Now, let me ask you, um, you spent, I think it was Slade was your first rock interview. Yeah. And they called you Big Jim Sullivan. Big Jim Sullivan. That's right. (laughs) Now, uh, do you know who Big Jim Sullivan is? I'm hoping you'll tell us. I will. I didn't know at the time. Uh, He is, was, he's not with us any longer, but he was a very famous not in the U.S., but in England, a very famous session guitarist. Look him up on Wikipedia, and you'll see all the number of people he's whose sessions he played on. And uh, didn't know him. I, I know Jim Sullivan's a fairly common name. That much I get. Uh, but I'm being introduced to them. And, uh, you know, I wasn't particularly uh, big. I was normal size, weight, height. And, um, you know, but they kept going, oh, Jim Sullivan, big Jim Sullivan, big Jim Sullivan. <laughs> okay, fine, guys. I guess that's, that's a good thing. You know, there, there wasn't a mean thing at all. They were welcoming me in. And, yeah, it was only, you know, years later where I realized, oh, that's what they picked up on. And, you know, however, you know, whatever their relationship was to the real big Jim Sullivan and or his music, they connected me with that. And that was part of the the welcome into their uh, circle, if you will. And it was my first rock interview. Um, They were not stars in America. They never were. But they were huge in England. I was an Anglophiliac rock critic, writer, fan. And to me, they were just top of the pops for me. They were this great band I loved. And so I... I don't idolize anybody, but I respect them immensely. And so I'm backstage with them going, this is really pretty damn cool talking to Slade. And they were blokes. They were just guys. They were happy that an American writer knew anything about them and could ask them questions that were halfway intelligent. And we had beers and we bantered and we joked. And I got an interview that I wasn't even really writing then. It was done for college radio. And I did, I taped the interview and did a Slade special on the radio station. <laughs> and, you know, an hour's worth of interview interspersed with music. And as I joke in the book, um, you know, this is a small college station in Maine, played to an audience, mostly has no idea who Slate is, if they had it on at all, maybe turned the dial because they didn't know who it was. <laughs> so I said something in the book about playing to an audience of probably a dozen students and many mouse and squirrel. A moose, I'm sorry, moose and squirrel, the, the joke, the uh, Rocky and Bowling joke. So, uh, but it was it was the best entree into the world that I would later inhabit, uh, that I can imagine. And I, in uh, when I was starting to do this book, I got back in touch with Dave Hill, the guitarist for Slade, and uh, we talked a little bit about those days. And that's in the intro to the book about, uh, you know, Slade's time in America, what went right, what went wrong. And, uh, you know, 
Elton John telling them, I can't understand why you're not huge stars. And them going, I don't know, we don't get it either. (laughs) That's funny. So anyway, yeah, that was uh, that was the way in. And that was a great one. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, We're talking with Jim Sullivan, the author of Backstage and Beyond. We're talking about volume two. He's got volume one has been out. But the other night we were at the Paradise Rock Club and that was the book launch that night. You've got a couple more events coming up where you're going to be putting the book out there for people and telling the stories. Tell us about yeah, those events. Yep, yeah, uh, I've got things coming up. I have uh, an event called Earful, uh, November 7th. That's at the Burren in Somerville. And that's a reading, it's a music and reading series that's been done for a number of years. And I've written about it as a writer. Uh, now I'm part of it, which I'm very honored to be. Uh, it's me, Mark Leibovich, uh, the, uh, the writer, Ted Leo, musician. Uh, Courtney Swain, the other musicians. So there's four of us, and we each have about a half-hour time block. And uh, I'm in the process right now of selecting what I want to read from the books to try to figure out what's the best, most impactful thing I can do in that amount of time. Uh, I also have City Winery uh, in their Haymarket Lounge. That's on November 13th. Um, it's going to be hosted by David Bieber, David Bieber Archives, and uh, a longtime friend. Uh, former WBCN, former WFNX, and uh, he will be, well, I'll be doing some reading and he'll be doing the QA with me there. And that is a sort of a wine pairing and book purchasing event, should you choose to do that. Um, the last thing right now is at the Brookline Public Library, November 16th. Uh, all these things are at seven o'clock, by the way, too. Uh, and that is free, open to the public. And that's an hour long event where I'll probably read for about a half hour and then do a QA for the rest of it. So looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, this is the next few days are the times where I've got to make decisions about what to read at each particular event and try to gear it to the audience that I think is going to be there. And, uh, you know, try to balance the tones. Uh, there's a lot of different tones in these books and, um, you know, there's, humorous there's tragic uh there's funny funny um you know there's things that are more musical in terms of uh edgar frosey from tangerine dream for instance talks about what goes into making the music and the emotions that come out of the music in this is an instrumental band that doesn't use words to convey these emotions to people and so i mean there's that that's probably unwieldy for a reading i mean granted and edgar is not as well known as David Bowie or Lou Reed or Iggy Pop. Um, so uh, I'll have to, you know, make some choices that way. But um, uh, anyway. so, oh, just actually, let me go back to, yeah. to the, the question you asked about funny anecdotes when I was talking about Iggy Pop. Um, uh, are naughty words okay on this podcast? Naughty uh, words are okay. You fucking better believe it. <laughs> All right. Fucking A. All right. Um, Iggy Pop, first interview I did with him was a phone interview. It was for a magazine called Sweet Potato, which was very important to me back in the day before the Globe Days kicked in. Um, and we're talking long interview, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes, something like that. And I'm, this is great. I love Iggy. And and uh, I just say, look, man, this has been terrific. I, we're talking longer than I thought we would. And, um, you know, I, I got everywhere. Uh you know, and he and he says, uh, "We don't, we don't have to go. I don't have to go now. We, sorry, we can keep talking." And uh, okay, he says, "Yeah, uh, I'm downstairs right now, but this girl is upstairs in my in my uh, hotel room that I'm fucking, and she just won't leave. I just want her to leave. So I'll talk to you as long as you want to. Maybe she'll leave." <laughs> okay, well, let's open it up for part two then. <laughs> the problems of a rock star. Yeah, the problems of a rock star. Exactly. <laughs> 
Jim, journalism has changed over the years. Newspapers are kind of a thing of the past. The internet has really taken over. If there was a young journalist that was up and coming and wants Mm -hmm. to be in your shoes, what kind of advice do you think that you would give to the young journalist? Probably something else. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, it's, and I don't mean to be cynical about that necessarily, but journalism and, and music criticism doesn't hold the place that it once did. With the internet, everybody's a critic, right? Everybody has an opinion. That's fine. Good. Very democratic that way. But trying to establish a voice and make it be important, make it be read to people, understood, cared for. It's a real difficult mountain to climb these days. And I'm not sure people are capable of doing that with the ever-shifting website scene, magazine scene, how few rock magazines there actually are now, and how diminished coverage is, certainly in daily newspapers for music. Uh, reviews are almost not there. Um, sometimes the big stars are, but you know, back in the day, uh, you know, I covered, you know, I covered bands at TT the Bears or the Middle East or the Rat that played to two or three hundred people and that were important. And I had editors, editors that thought they were important and knew that I could bring that kind of credibility and coverage to the paper. And be read and and have people react to it. And some of the best times I had was somebody spotting me in a club or if they didn't, they'd see me in my, writing in a notebook and say, oh, are you Jim? And I go, yeah. And just having the feedback of going like, I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. You're kind of spreading the music, spreading word about the music that I like to um, an audience, a bigger audience, a mainstream audience, if you will. And the idea was it, it kind of legitimized it in a way uh, that coverage of stuff that was somewhat underground mm-hmm. and it mattered then. And I guess what I'm saying is, I mean, I think now the, the landscape has changed so much and frankly, you know, uh, kids have other interests other than music. It's not as important to them as it was to us, just plain and simple. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, to give it to just answer your question simply it's hard to give advice about what to do i really don't know um and do you think that will ever take a a turn in come back kind of like the old uh vinyl records i don't no no No, i think that should be sale i think uh you know i think talk about this in the intro and i said you know i'm lucky to be born at the time i was born i was i missed elvis i was just a wee thing when elvis was there but I was a little, what was I, seven, six, seven, eight years old when the Beatles came on and I heard she loves you and I want to hold your hand and bought the 45s and blared them out of my dad's mono speaker in the living room and, uh, you know, moved on to everything else in the 60s, the pop music there, the psychedelia, et cetera, you know, grew up, hard rock, punk came in. So, you know, I was kind of at the right age to catch up various waves of a lot of good music and much of it you know as a kid and as a fan and then as the fan mutated into a writer and a critic you know even more so so i mean the exposure that i had to so many good things was just um, terrific and uh you know i've talked about that with other rock writers of my my uh, generation and we all kind of concur 
you know, it's like, yeah, what a great time to be born yeah. and a uh, great time to work, a <laughs> great yeah. time to see what we saw. As a kid, you probably in your wildest dreams never thought that you would be the guy that would be tasked to talk to hundreds of A-list people. No, no. As a kid, I didn't. I didn't know what I would be doing uh, as a kid. I knew I played baseball, but probably wasn't good enough to make it to the pros. Uh, that was true. And uh, but no, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I knew, I knew I was a fan of a lot of this stuff, uh, but I can remember as a kid, you know, listening to Bowie's Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, and just being dazzled by that world out there that was so far from my world in Orono and Bangor, Maine. And just you know, his world lived on my turntable, my crappy turntable and stereo in my bedroom, and all of that excitement and glamour and uh, sexuality. Whew, it just was rushed upon me as a whatever, however old I was, a 16 year old kid. So you skip ahead, you know, to me being with Bowie, you know, face to face and talking serious stuff with him. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, he, he wasn't intimidating and none of these people really were because, you know, if they accept that you know what you're talking about, generally speaking, they will treat you as a person and not like some idiot interviewer and same with me i mean i respect them but it doesn't mean i you know bow down to them but yeah there's a little kick when i you know when i step back from say interviewing bowie to go huh well that's pretty damn cool yeah <laughs> the 16 year old the 16 year old me would go huh you're gonna do that really really <laughs> so yeah there is that <laughs> the book covers uh, Backstage and Beyond covers 45 years of your life covering and chronicling the, the Boston music scene and, and basically the world music scene as, as they passed through here. Um, you talked about adding credibility to things because of what your body of work has, has brought you and or the credibility the body of work brings you. What are you doing nowadays? I know, you know, we talked to a friend of ours, Rob Sisti. Um, he's the one that made the introduction for us here. Yeah. Um, you and Rob do some work with the Hot Stove Cool Music uh, Foundation uh, to be named later. Is that true? Uh, I don't do work with it, but I've written about it a bunch okay. of times. Yeah. 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 So yeah. It, what was that like covering that group after after years of being, you know, covering the musicians that came through Boston, now covering that foundation and the events that they do? Uh, what's that like? And, and who are the musicians that you've enjoyed meeting through that? Well, uh, Hot Stove, I mean, has this local core of, you know, Bill Janowitz and Kay Hanley, uh, Ed Velasquez, um, and Peter Gammons, of course, Helms, yeah. you know, the thing. He's a friend and, you know, former Globe colleague. Um, so, and then, you know, they'll bring in guest stars, uh, Eddie Vedder, you know, coming in, probably the most famous they brought in, uh, Lenny Donardo, pitcher, guitarist, uh, and, um, the people I, I met there, I mean, there's a great vibe at Hot Stove Cool Music. Uh, it might've been better in the earlier days when some of the Red Sox participated in it. It was a little wilder and more fun. And, you know, to see Johnny Damon getting up on stage and getting a little <laughs> drunk and drunk and Arroyo. Runs in a royal plane. Yeah. It's, there's no Red Sox there anymore because the Red Sox don't live here in the off season. That's true. They live in Florida. They live in Arizona or something. So, um, that element isn't there anymore. Um, I mean, it's still a very good event. It raises a lot of money for a good cause. And, uh, you know, something I've been happy to be a part of for so many years. I mean, I haven't been to or covered every one, but a whole lot of them and they kind of blur together. So it's sort of like, oh, let's see. What have I seen? Who have I seen there? Uh, yeah, so reeling back, it's yeah. like, um, you know, I'd, I'd have to look at my notes as I so often say that, when that, people. That's how I feel when I try to remember my kids' names now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. When I 
sometimes I'll be talking to somebody about a band and I, they'll say, what do you think of them? And I'll go, oh, I've never seen them. And then I'll, I'll reconsider and go back home and look at my files and go, you know, not only have I seen them, I've reviewed them maybe like <laughs> twice, you know? So it's like, okay. You know, I mean, there, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bands and you can, you cannot be expected to remember each and every one. I certainly don't. I'm glad I have notes and files to remind me that I was there. Now that's an important piece to, to save those and, and archive those things as you go through life, make sure you yeah. save those pieces, that body of work in, yeah. in, in, in your life and in, in your work. I mean, to be able to go back and reflect at that is incredible and, and good for you to be such a um, archivist, so to speak. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. It, it's great that he was able to put all these stories that the normal person like you and I wouldn't know. It's yeah. great. I mean, he lived it and he was able to, it's an, it's uh, to an tell inter- us. It's an interesting life. That's for sure. <laughs> it has been that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, uh, I mean, the one, one of the good things about journalism in, in general, I think, and one of the reasons I probably got into it, uh, not just music journalism, but journalism to begin with, is that the job changes every day. And yes, you may be writing the same words. You've used these words before and that structure and you know maybe these ideas, but the subject matter changes and the perspective changes. And, you know, there is a certain familiarity, but there's a challenge each and every time. And add, when you add the music element to it, yeah, I mean, you're writing about maybe music is the catch-all for what you're doing, but there's so many different ways to write about that, so many different approaches. Um, you know, so when I cover something now, I mean, it's, you know, sort of starting fresh in a way, sort of like, okay, uh, how do I explain what I'm taking in, who I'm talking to or what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So, so it's got to be a lot of work going out there and, and pushing this book and getting out in front of people and, and, and telling the stories. Um, it, it, it's got to be taxing on you. I know the other night we were out late um, uh, at, at the Paradise and, and all of these shows, City Winery is going to be, they yeah. start at seven, they go for a while, but then you, you get time afterwards where you have to, you know, rub elbows and talk to people and, and it, it's got to be taxing. So ah, what, it's, ta- it's it's taxing, but any complaints I have, it's, like, it's taxing <laughs> in a good way. You know, come on, you know, look, you're the center of attention for a while. <laughs> and I mean, to complain about that is eh, a little so, bit, so, nah, it's a little dicey. You know? it's like, hey, please stay away, stay away. It's like, you know, these it's like rock stars who, you know, suffer and struggle for fame. They get famous and go, keep away. I don't want you around. Hey, what did you work for? Oh, right, to be famous. To be famous. Well, <laughs> sorry, part of it is. No sympathy needed. I, I'm fine. <laughs> I, I hope you're getting the time where you can go out and relax and maybe do a little golfing, do a little few things with, with Rosa and, and, and enjoy it. And As, as a matter of fact, uh, we have a walk coming up this afternoon in our local park after I'm done here Excellent. with you fellas. As much as I'd love to talk to you all afternoon, we've got a little walking to do. Awesome. And there is a golf game tomorrow. Excellent. So, Fantastic. Well, listen, one, one of the things we're going to share with you when, uh, when we're offline is we've got some friends that do another podcast. It's another Sunday podcast, Jerry Davila and Debbie Catalano. Um, mm-hmm. They would love to sit down with you. I think you'd fit right into their podcast uh, themes, and, and I think it'd be a terrific conversation and it will yeah. help get your book help into another book. another yeah. uh, piece of the audience. So yeah. happy to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's sure. been, been awesome that you took your time out of your little book tour and your family life to hang with Mark and I today. And 
We, you know, one thing that we, we try to end the show and we'll let you get out for your walk and then uh, get the clubs all ready uh, and cleaned up and ready to go tomorrow. But we like to think that every time we have someone come in the studio, zoom in, sit down with us, have a conversation, that through that we've gained a new friend and we'd like to think that uh, we, we are now friends with Big Jim Sullivan and we thank you for taking some time and spending it with us. Uh, Jim. Thank you. Yes, yes, I think Cheers. we are. Thank you very much. And uh, Cheers. Thanks for the time, guys. Yeah, thanks thank for you. coming on and being our friend. Bye-bye. All right. Take care, Bye-bye. Jim.